Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. It is our weekly roundtable, and we discuss with our panelists uh, COP27, the UN Conference on the Environment. We also discuss the D20 meetings and the Biden summit, the United States and China, as well as the midterms and implications. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced she's giving up the leadership position she held for 15 years. She made the announcement on the House floor Thursday, a day after Republicans clinched a majority in the lower chamber. Christopher Martinez reports. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made her big announcement Thursday. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Pelosi's decision on whether to remain the House Democratic leader had been in question, in part because Republicans flipped the House majority in the midterm elections, and even more so after the apparently politically motivated attack on her husband. Although she's stepping down from her leadership position, Pelosi is remaining in office as the representative from solidly Democratic San Francisco. She's held that office for 35 years, during which she has seen some changes. When I came to the Congress in 1987, there were 12 Democratic women. Now they're over 90, and we want more. <laughs> Pelosi notes that 75% of the new members of the Democratic caucus will be women, people of color, and LGBTQ. As for the speakership, that role will presumably now go to a Republican. Kevin McCarthy of California reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA. I'm Christopher Martinez. Catherine Carley reports on who may be vying to lead the House Democrats next. Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York is reportedly next in line for House Minority Leader. He's the current chair of the House Democratic Caucus and would be the first black person to lead a party in Congress. Catherine Clark of Massachusetts and Pete Aguilar of California were also expected to vie for top positions in the party. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. With Republicans in control of the House, they're turning their attention to President Joe Biden with investigations into his family businesses and associates, specifically targeting Biden's son, Hunter. James Comer of Kentucky will be chair of the House Oversight Committee. The investigation reveals a family that engaged with some of America's most powerful adversaries planning to sell one of the largest sources of cobalt for electric vehicles in the world to the Chinese, for example. The Bidens flourished and became millionaires by simply offering access to the family. Among the dozens of shell companies the Bidens set up, there were millions of dollars of wire transfers. Many transactions related to these businesses have raised red flags at U.S. banks. 
One SAR generated by an American bank to the Treasury Department connects Hunter Biden and his business associates to international human trafficking among other illegal activities. Republicans gained control cinching the 218th seat this week. It's a narrow lead. Democrats have claimed 211 seats. Votes are still being counted in other races. A dangerous snowstorm paralyzed parts of western and northeastern New York with more than a foot of snow. And a driving ban is in place to keep people off the roads in the Buffalo area, where the National Weather Service says up to four feet might fall in some areas through Sunday. New York Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency for 11 communities Thursday. Climate talks appeared stalled on major issues going into the final hours of the COP27 summit, but possibilities for a deal were lifted by an unexpected proposal by the European Union that involves a fund to compensate for climate disasters. The nations of the global south say the world's richest countries should pay for the damage since they have historically been the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases. Eileen Alfandari reports. Pakistan's United Nations Ambassador Nabil Munir told a panel on the sidelines of the official summit that Pakistan is not asking for a bailout when it demands establishment of a compensation fund for loss and damage caused by climate-related disaster. Loss and damage is, is not charity. Loss and damage is climate justice. Pakistan suffered epic flooding in August and September. More than 1,500 people died and millions were left homeless. A third of our population, our, our country was underwater. 33 million people were impacted. Countries like Pakistan, 0.1, less than 0.1% of the GHG emissions, if they are impacted, they have to be compensated in some way. And what we are talking about is burden sharing, nothing more than that. The issue of loss and damage is one of three financial aid pots being discussed. Rich nations agreed in past conferences to spend $100 billion a year to help poorer countries develop cleaner energy systems and adapt to prevent future disasters. Those countries have fallen short in keeping that financial commitment. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. In the U.S., the Biden administration says Saudi Arabia's crown prince should be shielded from lawsuits over his role in the killing of a U.S. journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. It's a stunning turnaround for President Joe Biden, who as a candidate denounced crown prince Mohammed bin Salman over the killing. It comes in a motion filed by the U.S. in a federal court brought by the late journalist fiancé and the rights group he founded. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Honest. All righty, and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable, and I'd like to welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program, and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here as usual. Yes, thank you, Laura. And we'd like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, governing 
board member of the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to the council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Hello, how are you? Good to be here. And we'd like to welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. Dr. Horn's latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of the United States. And uh, also, he has a few upcoming books that, uh, Dr. Horn, welcome. Tell us about what you have coming up. Well, thank you for inviting me. A book on Washington D.C. in the 20th century in the next few months. Wow. Okay. Well, we're looking we're looking forward to that. And Dr. Horn, it was really a pleasure speaking with you at the webinar that was held uh, last Sunday. It was a fundraiser uh, for KPFK. We want to thank you, and we did quite well. Appreciate you doing that for us and supporting KPFK. Alrighty, we're going to kick off with the UN Conference on the Environment, known as COP27, Committee of the Parties is what COP stands for. It began on November the 6th in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. There were about 35,000 delegates, uh, NGOs, journalists, activists, etc. And they're supposed to finalize an agreement on Friday, November 18th. That is, if they could come to an agreement. Although it seems that the long-standing pledge of bringing global warming to 1.5 was approved and agreed, other contentious issues have not been resolved. Although the government of Egypt had pledged that this summit would be the African COP, the request by African nations that an agenda item be included on Africa's, quote, special needs and circumstances, end of quote, according to reports from CNN, that request was denied. Much of the outrage of both African governments and African climate change activists. African activists are also complaining that countries of the global north are trying to force African nations to further buy into fossil fuels. And the oil and gas lobby, by the way, had a big presence at COP27. And according to Stand.Earth, a grassroots organization, the UN document doesn't even mention oil and gas. It doesn't mention fossil fuel expansion. And additionally, the demand for loss and damage, as you heard in our news headlines, for a fund for that, first put forward about a decade ago or so, was cause for much disagreement between countries of the global south and countries of the global north, the U.S. and Europe in particular, resisting the call uh, for a fund claiming it would hold them liable for climate damage. Thus far, Germany is leading Global Shield, which is being described as a loss and damage program. The EU has committed some limited funds, but some of that, frankly, had already been pledged. Um, but uh, the United States and other countries are resisting, countries of the global north, any responsibility for loss and damage. Indeed, the Biden administration has promised some action in three to four years 
too late to assist the countries most vulnerable to damage due to climate change. Meanwhile, Lula, the president-elect of Brazil, was treated like a rock star at COP27. He pledged to stop deforestation in the Amazon and that he will prioritize reforestation programs. Given all of that, some are saying the draft document coming out of COP27 pays the way for climate hell, right? So we'll be discussing all of this with our panelists. Let us go now to a short clip from CNN. World leaders converged on Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, this week for the COP27 climate conference. The U.N. gathering will wrap up later this week, but let's discuss what has and hasn't been accomplished so far. Joining me is Bill Weir, CNN's chief climate correspondent. Always great to see you, Bill. So let's talk about what the deliverables that came from President Biden uh, when he spoke. He noted that the U.S. would meet its own emissions targets by 2030, a $369 billion commitment to clean energy initiatives in the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as new methane rules. How was this all received by the crowd there and by experts? I think uh, the sentiment is, wow, it's, it's, it's such a great change given the predecessor, given the tone of the Trump administration. But I think the consensus is, is America's ambitions don't go nearly far enough to, to meet the problem. Uh, just to, in terms of meeting his goals by 2030, he says, we're, you know, the U.S. is on track for that. The more important goal is, um, is, the, is the idea that we, we pin this, this cut to the year that the U.S. started moving off of coal, right, 2004. So the goal is to cut it by 50% from that year, by 2030. Uh, 35% is about what the current policy will get us to. The Inflation Reduction Act gets us to about 45%. So even all in, the U.S. is falling short. But really, to be fair, the rest of the world is as well. Uh, Glasgow, everybody made a promise we're going to come back to Sharm el-Sheikh with more ambitious plans, and only a tiny percentage of the countries in attendance actually did that. Uh, And the world is a very different place now with Putin's war uh, and the energy shocks that came out of that as well. Big oil is making record profits right now and still getting so many in trillions or billions in subsidies every year. And you're seeing countries like Costa Rica, who tried to join with Denmark last year and be the first countries to lead the way beyond oil and gas. Costa Rica announced they're pulling back from that as well and thinking more about deforestation and other other less challenging issues. So it's a it's a heavy lift for Joe Biden. And he also had to kind of step up and reach for the check when it comes to loss and damages as well. All righty, there you go, Laura Carlson. We're going to start with you, and uh, you also likely want to comment on on Lula and uh, the pledges that he made. Uh, but your thoughts on all of this? I know our last roundtable we talked a bit about the the loss and damage fund and and some of the uh, tensions around it, and it seems as though the U.S. and the e- European nations are continuing to resist it. And a lot of people are are now saying a lot of disappointment thus far. I mean, the final document isn't ready yet, just a draft, but CNBC is referring to it as paving the way to climate hell. Laura Carlson. Yeah, so we have a little bit more information now. Today's the last day and that draft agreement is out. And it's caused, as as was mentioned, a lot of outrage. It's currently being revised. It's unlikely that it will be revised in major ways that would respond to the kinds of critics, the criticisms that are out about it. And basically what we're seeing is another cop that 
fails to meet even minimally the expectations, not just the expectations, but the requirements for survival of the planet. They recognize that there's this grave and significant gap between the party's mitigation pledges and what actually needs to be done. And then there's a whole slew of words like we recognize, we encourage, we affirm, we note, and almost no real plans that would change this disastrous path that we're on. And in fact, as you mentioned, even the national plans, very few countries bothered to even revise them, taking into account the new scientific information about how the situation is even much worse than was predicted. So we were just not seeing a political will to do anything significant here. Greenpeace said we came for real action on climate finance, on adaptation commitments, on a phase out of fossil fuels and uh, for rich countries to pay for loss and damage. And none of that is on offer in this draft. The big one that is being criticized is what was mentioned, the fact that there is a complete omission of talking about, and much less even putting on the table, significant measures for a phase out of fossil fuel extraction. This is no wonder, considering that there are 600 fossil fuel lobbyists at this event, and it looks more like an expo on fossil fuel investment than, uh, you know, a climate change conference. They basically say it encourages efforts to accelerate measures toward the phase down of coal power and phase out and rationalize inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. That's as far as they go in this draft. And the developed countries should attain net negative carbon emissions by 2030, all of which are way too little and way too late. So that's one of the biggest. And the other big criticism is, of course, the loss and damages. The United States government has been called out as the major government that's resisting this. They put it in there, but there's no details whatsoever on the funds. And meanwhile, the, the activists in Africa are saying that 40 million people in the Horn of Africa are already experiencing climate-induced hunger crisis. They mention food systems, they mention international financial organizations doing more climate finance, preferably without increasing debt, but again, no details. So basically, we're seeing, once again, the developed countries refusing to take any responsibility here and the putting profits and especially the profits of the oil and gas industry ahead of planetary survival. Thank you, Laura. Jackie Goldberg, I mean, nations aren't putting their money where their mouth is. You know, there's all this talk about the climate crisis. We all know that everything that we care about, and indeed, not only the existence of people on this planet, but just life on the planet generally, in jeopardy. I mean, this is a, a catastrophe. This is a crisis. But you would never tell that given the discussions going on at COP27. Your thoughts, Jackie Goldberg, on all of this? Yeah, well, I was probably the most disappointed when they decided not to keep 1.5C alive. You know, they've gone back to the Paris Accord language of uh, well below 2C and make the best efforts to keep it under 1.5C. Well, that's ridiculous. We know that if they don't keep it under 1.5C, catastrophe is the only answer to the world. And we know that, and we've known that for some time. So the idea that you could water down 
the notion that that is still the goal when that at least came out of COP26 in Glasgow, there seemed to be support. It's gone. It's gone. They've gone back to Paris. You know, uh, it's very bad. It's very bad. And also, I think that we had hoped for with the U.S. and China discussions that perhaps U.S. and China would look at each other and say it's time for the two largest superpowers in the world, the largest populations, in the, not the largest populations in the United States, but in China, that they could have, you know, done something more together to work on this. And I think that they got nowhere in those talks on climate, uh, at least none that we could see in this in this COP27 conference. Uh, I think the only real delight is Brazil and the notion that the Amazon, which is, you know, absolutely essential, the Amazon for world survival, that at least we have someone now in charge that may actually make a reversal of what had been quite a long period of deforestation of the Amazon. Right. Thank you for that, Jackie Goldberg. And you're right in in terms of the 1.5. I mentioned it in my intro. So, yeah, I mean, they, as you say, didn't quite agree to it. They're saying, well, this is a, a goal or something, but it definitely was watered down. Now, while we've been on the air, media, The Guardian is reporting that there's a breakthrough, that the EU agrees to loss and damage fund to help poor countries, but not so fast because the countries of the global South are saying, wait a minute, this is not a breakthrough. This is just, quote, a pre- predictable attempt by the EU to break up the G77, which are the countries of the global South, in talks. Of course, it's not a breakthrough. They're merely repeating its original negotiating position by making it sound like a compromise when they know very well it's not. It is completely disingenuous. Okay, so Dr. Horn, uh, there you go. I mean, you have the entire continent of Africa basically thrown under the bus. You've got African um, campaigners saying, look, the country of the North, whatever it is they're saying, they're trying to white mail us. They're trying to force us into um, even more uh, dependence on, on fossil fuels. And now you have this flap over what the EU is is saying is a breakthrough and countries of the global south say, uh, no, it's not. And Dr. Horn, the thing that's so aggravating about all of it is that the United States and countries of the global north are acting like they owe nothing to the countries of the global south. Part of the problem is that the head of the World Bank, a U.S. appointee, has been accused credibly by former Vice President Al Gore and New York Times of being a climate denier. Given the fact that the World Bank is going to have to play a pivotal role in the reconstruction of the global economy so that catastrophe can be averted and avoided, obviously this is a major issue. I should also say that uh, despite the obvious setbacks that have taken place uh, at Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, an emerging principle is very important, this loss-damage principle, not only because it establishes a, a kind of benchmark for reparations to the global south, but it also has domestic implications in terms of implications for reparations to descendants of enslaved Africans in North America and throughout the former British Empire, the former French Empire, et cetera. 
Uh, similarly, I thought it was important that Indonesia, one of the most sizable nations on planet Earth, uh, has agreed to not use coal, which obviously heats up the environment in return for transfer payments. There has been a similar deal with the West African nation of Gabon with regard to preserving its forests, the lungs of the planet, in return for transfer payments. But as well, part of the problem with this COP27 meeting was the repressive environment in which it was held. It's very difficult to have progressive measures emerge from a nation like Egypt, which has jailed thousands of political prisoners, which is involved in the continuing controversy with Ethiopia, in fact, accused credibly of stirring up conflict in Ethiopia. And that was not the most positive and beneficial climate and environment for a global session on the climate. Right. Thank you uh, for that, Dr. Horn. And I also want to point to perhaps we could post this up on the Sojourn Truth social media. There is a document um, uh, called uh, the uh, Bridgetown. Well, let me just read it. The urgent and decisive action required for an unprecedented combination of crises. The 2022 Bridgetown Agenda for the Reform of the Global Financial Architecture. It's a one-page document, and it's very interesting because what it's doing, it is challenging um, what was set up with the Bretton Woods um, uh, the Bretton Woods 44 years ago, I, well, 44 countries, 44 years ago uh, that set up these international financial institutions. And they're saying that all of this has to be reformed. Bridgetown, of course, is the capital of my island nation of Barbados. Very interesting uh, document there. And it relates to the demands uh, happening now at COP27. So on that note, we're going to pause here, take our station break, and when we return, we'll be talking about the um, Biden-Chi uh, meeting, the, the summit, the, the G20, and other summits that are happening, including a meeting that's happening now in, in Mexico that, Laura, we hope you will fill us in on. And then we'll also be talking about the midterms, the continued fallout, um, the importance of Georgia, and the old guard, new leadership uh, stepping up in the House of Representatives. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Out in the rain by the sweeps. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. Our website is still down. We are working on getting 
that back up and we will let you know that it is. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio are also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Texas and internationally. We would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Ireland. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We are now going to uh, turn our attention to um, international uh, issues. We, we discussed, well, the climate, uh, COP27, also an international issue, but this time focusing on the summit between President uh, Biden and President Xi of, of China, also the G20 uh, meeting that uh, happened in uh, Bali. And in fact, there are a number of summits uh, that still seem to be, uh, that have been going on recently. Leaders of the world's group of 20, the wealthiest nations, they concluded a two-day summit on the Indonesian island of Bali on Wednesday. The summit was preceded by a bilateral meeting between U.S. Uh, President Joe Biden and President Xi, as I mentioned. Now, that was the first time that the two had met in person since Biden uh, became president. Now, both sides said that while the three-hour meeting laid out major differences, especially over Taiwan, trade restrictions and technology transfers, the two agreed to keep communication open and to avoid uh, confrontation. Now, G20 leaders agreed to pursue efforts to limit the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, confirming um, that they stand by the temperature goal goal of the 2015 uh, Paris Agreement. As Jackie Goldberg mentioned earlier, that's clearly not what's going on at uh, COP20, that it in fact has weakened uh, what was agreed to in 2015 in Paris. Also, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden and the uh, Indonesian president announced a climate finance deal providing $20 billion to help the Southeast Asian countries shift away from coal power. Uh, let us go now to a clip, if that is ready, of, of uh, President Biden talking about his meeting with President Xi. Based on this meeting today, do you believe a, a new Cold War with China can be avoided and specifically on the issue of Taiwan, you spoke about intentions. Do you believe China is preparing, intending to invade Taiwan at some point? And what warnings did you issue to President Xi if he were to take such action? Well, to answer the first part of your question, I absolutely believe there need not be a new Cold War. We, uh, I've met, met many times with Xi Jinping, and we were candid and clear with one another across the board. And I do not think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan. And I uh, made it clear that our policy on Taiwan has not changed at all. It's the same exact position we've had. I made it clear that we want to see cross-strait issues peacefully resolved. And, uh, and so it never has to come to that. And uh, I'm convinced that uh, that he understood exactly what I was saying. I understood what he was saying. And uh, look, I think the United States is better prepared than any country in the world, economically and politically. 
to deal with the changing circumstances around the world. And uh, I think that uh, um, I think Xi Jinping is uh, we agreed that we would set up a set of circumstances where on issues that were that we had to further resolve details. We agreed that we would have our chief of staff or the appropriate cabinet members and others sit and meet with one another to discuss the details of any every issue that we that was raised. And we raised a lot of issues. Um, uh, Sung Kim, Associated Press. Mr. President. Um, uh, you met with President Xi, and you met with him face-to-face -face after he had unquestionably consolidated his power at home. So now that you've met with him face-to-face, -face, how do you assess um, his sort of posture towards the United States now? And did you find him personally to be more confrontational or more conciliatory and willing to compromise? Neither and yes. I, yes, I didn't find him more confrontational or more conciliatory. I found him what he's always been, direct and straightforward. And uh, do I think he's willing to compromise on various issues? Yes. Right. Okay. So on that note, that's a clip from CNN. Dr. Horn, you may be on mute. We're actually going to start with you on your thoughts on this uh, summit, on the G20 meeting, but also the other uh, meetings um, that are taking place, because apparently uh, there is another uh, meeting that's happening um, in the region that neither uh, Biden or uh, um, or Putin uh, is attending. And so that has given, according to reports, uh, China will have free reign at that particular meeting. That's the APEC uh, Leaders Summit. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts on these summits and the outcome. Well, first of all, with regard to the Biden-Xi meeting, I'm not sure if the rhetoric of Mr. Biden can override the fact that tensions are rising between Beijing and Washington. Uh, they reached a fever pitched in August 2022 when then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island of Taiwan, followed by a number of high-level congressional delegations. It's also striking that at the G20 meeting in Bali, Indonesia, cameras captured a sharp confrontation between President Xi and Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada. And I'm not sure if that helped relations with the North Atlantic bloc. And then there's the, these news accounts that are emerging suggesting that China is maintaining what are called, quote, police stations, unquote, in the United States and in the North Atlantic countries whereby they monitor their own citizenry in these countries and who knows what else, according to these press reports. And so uh, the relations between these two superpowers do not seem to be improving. And the fact that China at least is providing tacit support to the Russian intervention in the Ukraine also gives credence to this idea that relations are not destined to improve and speaking of the Ukraine, listeners may know we barely averted the World War III just a few days ago when the Associated Press quoted an unnamed U.S. official as saying that a Russian missile had hit Poland, a NATO member. And of course, there was a scramble of NATO member countries meeting in the G20 in Bali, Indonesia. 
Apparently, that was not a true account by the Associated Press. It, however, has been echoed by the government of Ukraine. And therefore, it seems to me that uh, we're really at a very low level, a low plateau in terms of international relations. Right. Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Horn. And um, Jackie Goldberg, I mean, some of the takeaways, according to the United uh, States Institute for Peace, uh, of that uh, summit, the Biden uh, cheese summit, was what they are calling the return to regular diplomatic engagement, that that's a small step, but that it is significant that by then she agreed that a nuclear war should never be fought and could never be won. So, you know, that's that's a good thing, that agreement. Um, another one, the Biden-Chi meeting was just one piece of a sweeping diplomatic campaign as she uh, returns to the international stage to begin his third term. So, and he was greatly strengthened uh, by the meetings and, and his uh, moving forward to a third term. But uh, Jackie Goldberg, um, your thoughts on this, because the, the agreement also strongly uh, condemned uh, the war in um, the Ukraine, quote, um, the group of 20 deplores in the strongest terms the aggression by the Russian Federation against Ukraine and demands its complete and unconditional withdrawal from the territory of Ukraine. And it is said that the Russian foreign minister actually departed, left the G20 summit early. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on the well, summit and know, the Chi meeting? Yeah. I, I think that the Chi meeting uh, is hard to really understand because we don't have a lot of the details. Um, I think that what I'm seeing, though, is this hosting the Belt and Road Forum coming up in 2023 by China. I think that what we need to be looking at is the plan by China to invest in infrastructure in nations in order to, in my opinion, make them dependent upon them uh, and get those relationships in power. I think this is a part of the uh, um, uh, China's plan, and when it last time it did, it stopped it during COVID nineteen. But before that, it had delegates and leaders from more than two hundred countries and organizations. Uh, I think that China's goal is is to begin to get involved in really very countries in in certainly in South America and Central America. Now more and more in Africa. And I believe now, of course, they're also going into Afghanistan. They have a Chinese group uh, that is meeting with the Taliban on a regular basis, something called Chinatown to bring jobs and factories uh, from China into Afghanistan. This is a part of a global strategy. And I uh, don't see uh, the United States taking on this global strategy uh, by becoming also a purveyor of uh, belt and Road uh, assistance to parts of the world that could certainly use the United States investment and assistance. So I, I think that the the China um, <clears throat> U.S. relationships around a variety of issues are going to be uh, longstanding. I think the only positive thing I can say is is that that because 
Biden has met with Xi for so many years as vice president of the United States that at least it's very unlikely that anything terrible would happen because they didn't talk to each other. They didn't understand what each other meant. They didn't speak to the same kinds of uh, you know, views on various things. I think they are very candid and knowledgeable of each other, which I think is very hopeful for a non-war competition between the two nation states. Right. Thank you, uh, Jackie Goldberg. And Laura Carlson, um, you know, in addition to the, 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 the summits, the meeting with um, Xi and, and Biden and G20, there's also a meeting coming up in uh, Mexico, or perhaps it's happening now in Mexico City, uh, that would be useful for us to think about. And clearly, the whole Xi-Biden uh, um, bilat, as they, they call it, was part of the context of the G20 meeting. It's also uh, part of the context of the COP27 uh, meeting, frankly. And clearly, the, the competition between China and the United States on the economic front, but also on other fronts, uh, continues. And, and Biden is uh, trying to to establish that, hey, the United States is still an important player here. We're not going to be overtaken by China in terms of influence, not only in the region, um, but um, where the summit took place, but also in the global south generally. Uh, Laura Carlson. Well, Margaret, first of all, we always have to take into account when we have these discussions that the G20 is is an organization that really should not exist it's the reaffirmation you know of of the wealthy of dominant wealthy countries and them planning out the future for all the rest of us as well uh in that context you know what came out of the meeting was predictable a long list they actually re, they actually landed on a declaration which hasn't always happened it's a long list 200 commitments most of them are repetitions of what's been said before, um, you know, and there's and there's a strong reaffirmation of profits before anything else that would be like generally beneficial to the populations facing the crises we face. Um, that's to be expected. In terms of the meeting between she and Biden, uh, I I think that it is positive that there's a restoration, especially after the rupture with the Taiwan visit that there's a restoration of diplo diplomatic challenges, I mean, channels, the ones that Biden mentioned in terms of working groups. Um, there's a planned visit now of Blinken. There seems to be that, that relative opening up within the margins that are available considering the conflict of interest that, believe, that are very fundamental between the two countries. Um, and then that this is happening in the context of the consolidation of the power of Xi is also taking it to a different stage in some reasons, in some, in some ways rather. Of course, this is still in the context, context of a military buildup in the region from both sides and, and there's no real uh, end in sight to the high tension within the region, especially regarding Taiwan. But backing down from the Cold War rhetoric is important because the Cold War is a Cold War and it's mostly focused on rhetoric as we've seen in the past, but it generates hot wars and it generally speaking generates hot wars in the global South. 
You know, the Cold War meant the death squads in El Salvador. The Cold War meant the proxy wars but to against communism in, in the countries in the global South. And so when we see anything that kind of backs down a little off that, it's a good sign. And the backing down off that, you know, there it's, it's dangerous that Cold War rhetoric and not so much for Chinese investment, which I think it's important to say that Chinese investment in the global South can be welcomed if there are proper conditions for sovereignty. And that it's a double standard to say when it's a conspiracy, if it's Chinese investment in the global South, when US investment, imperialist investment in the global South exists all over and is not called out in the same way. I think that's important to say now, for example, with Lula at COP calling for investment in preserving the Amazon, well, everybody just needs to help preserve the Amazon and support that now with finally a president who is on a track for preservation rather than massive destruction that Bolsonaro was carrying out. And this, this summit in Mexico City to finish up is, is a very different kind of summit because it's specifically the hardcore far right uh, groups and it's related to our midterm um, results that we, that we want to try to get to in the sense that this is part of the regrouping of the far right, not just within the United States, where actually they're fairly well positioned as a result of the midterms, despite the talk of not reaching the high heights they predicted for them, but also in the international level. They suffered a defeat with Bolsonaro in Brazil, which was going to be very important to them. And now all of a sudden, Bannon and Ted Cruz and Giamate, the far-right president of corrupt president of Guatemala, and Bolsonaro's son Eduardo are here in Mexico City looking at how they're going to re-strategize to basically create these nationalist populist violent, uh, misogynist movements in Latin America and look toward a future of, of an international front of neo-fascist governments. So we're watching it very closely. We're very concerned about it. It, it, it's, it has a lot to do with, as I say, the regrouping and the Trump announcement of his presidency in the United States in this global and interrelated world, as we always announce at the top of our program. Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And uh, before we, we wrap the show, we've got about 10 minutes here. Let us um, go to focus then on the elections, the, the midterm elections, the, um, the, you know, the runoff that's happening in Georgia, the really good news to many of Karen Bass becoming the first black woman to be the mayor of Los Angeles and the second black person indeed uh, to be there. There are lots of congratulations coming not only from Los Angeles, but around the nation uh, to Karen Bass, who managed to beat back a billionaire who spent a hundred million dollars of his own money. I think Karen's, her campaign was maybe like a couple of million from what I've heard. So um, a big accomplishment there. But uh, Jackie Goldberg, 
your thoughts. You have a, a new guard uh, now, Nancy Pelosi, uh, setting, uh, stepping aside, uh, new leadership uh, coming up. Your thoughts on uh, the impact from what you have seen so far of these elections, Jackie Goldberg. Well, I think that the new leadership is going to have some real challenges. I think Jeffries is very likely to lead the new leadership of the Democrats. And I think that Pelosi stepping down was the right time for her, particularly because I'm sure of the need for her to spend more time as her husband recovers from the attack. I think that with a Clark, she won a special election in Massachusetts. And I think that she has traveled across the country. She is a little bit more progressive, in my view, than Jeffries. And so uh, and also it's, I think, important to have a woman in the leadership always in it, because it had been so long before that it happened. And then, of course, we have Mr. Aguilar, who, of course, we know a lot about in California. He comes from a very blue collar family. I think his father worked uh, in a cafeteria in the San Bernardino courthouse. He was the mayor of Redlands. He flipped a seat in 2014. And I think the three of them will also open up other opportunities for other Democrats to move into the leadership. We'll have to see what that means. All of us in Los Angeles who are progressive are absolutely overjoyed of the election of Karen Bass, who has been a successful implementer of strategies to make change both in our state house in Sacramento when she was the speaker of the assembly and also her years in Congress uh, and her roles in the Black Caucus and particularly her roles uh, working with the uh, Obama administration. I think that we're going to see in Los Angeles um, a more progressive city council. We still have a lot of struggles. Our big issues still remain homelessness and the affordable housing. People just can't afford to live in Los Angeles, uh, period, no matter what income they seem to be making. And uh, it is a very difficult time. But I think the excitement is, is that she brings with it her organizing in communities. Uh, so she's a bottom up rather than a top down type of elected official. And that's not something we've seen in Los Angeles in a very long time. Right. Thank you, uh, Jackie Goldberg. And again, you're right. Uh, new leadership in the House, uh, multiracial, male and, and female, Black, a, a, a woman, um, and uh, a Latino. So we'll see how all of that goes as the old guard has stepped aside. Now, Dr. Gerald Horn, you know, a lot, you know, of eyes are on Georgia right now with this runoff election. Uh, between uh, the Trump candidate, a black man, Herschel Walker, and of course, uh, Raphael, Senator Raphael uh, Warnock. And one thing that I didn't know is that there was some guy named Denmark Grover Jr. in Georgia who lost an election because uh, <clears throat> back in 1958 or some such because of the black vote. And so he, once he became elected, he managed to, um, you know, get, um, you know, legislation in place uh, that, um, you know, around these runoffs, right, these runoff elections. And also last year, uh, Georgia Republicans introduced SB 202 that cut the early voting window from nine weeks to four weeks in a runoff, right? And clearly trying to uh, undercut uh, the the black vote, uh, limiting the voting window, et cetera, et cetera. So voter suppression uh, happening there. And December 6th, 
coming up very, very soon for that really important election that will determine who will control the Senate. I mean, the yeah, the Senate. Dr. Horn. Well, Senator Warnock has brought a lawsuit trying to overturn the prohibition against voting on Saturdays before December 6th election. Uh, he may prevail. And despite the fact that the GOP already has lost the Senate, uh, having that extra vote provided by Senator Warnock could be important. Recall what happened within the last year or two with Senator Sinema of Arizona, Senator Manchin of West Virginia, and they're blocking climate legislation and other important pieces of legislation. Perhaps that could be averted with a Warnock victory. On the other hand, I think we have to pay careful attention to what's happening in New York State. Recall that the GOP flipped four seats in New York State, supposedly a citadel of progressivism. And part of the problem is a split between the left and the center within the Democratic Party. The chairman of the Democratic Party in New York State, Jay Jacobs, has been waging a holy war against the left, up to and including uh, terming India Walton. Recall, she was the Democratic Socialist of America candidate who prevailed in the Democratic primary for mayor of Buffalo and then was beaten in a write-in vote by the man she defeated. Uh, Jay Jacobs, the chairman of the Democratic Party, compared her to David Duke, uh, which is obviously outrageous. Similarly, Mayor Eric Adams of New York City has come under criticism for helping to bolster GOP talking points with regard to crime. Crime played a major issue in terms of flipping those four seats. And to suggest that this is not just a New York trend, in today's L.A. Times, there's a major story about how there is a similar left-center split in the state of Nevada, which probably contributed to the governor, who had been, who was, or is a Democrat, uh, going down to defeat. And so I think that in terms of splits, what we need to encourage is a split in the GOP. What we need to encourage is Mr. Trump uh, taking his ball and going home in case he is not nominated for president, because I think that would be in the strategic best interest of the major population groups in this country. Thank you, Dr. Horn. And Laura Carlson, I'm afraid you just have a minute uh, to, uh, you know, to comment on this. Uh, a lot more people hopeful, actually, after these election results than before last time we spoke. I think we were still waiting uh, to see, in, indeed, how some of these races would go, including in the Senate. Laura Carlson. I think there is something hopeful in the fact that people reacted against some of those Trump candidates and the Democrats especially came out to vote to say that this is not okay. I think that we're still in a very difficult position. The House under Republican control, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can pass legislation or concrete actions, but they have a platform for their rhetoric. They have a platform to to create, you know, more public opinion, to influence public opinion, and to also to position themselves for elections again in 2024. So it's a right regrouping, as I mentioned before. It's uh, uh, it means that there will be considerable uh, inability to govern 
from the Congress. Yeah. Right. Well, on that note, we're sadly uh, out of time. Um, next week, because of the Thanksgiving uh, holiday, we won't have our weekly roundtable. So I want to take the time now to just wish you and your family, all of our panelists, a very good Thanksgiving if you're celebrating it or you're recognizing what is increasingly called thanks taking. <laughs> All righty. So we're going to have to leave it there. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Gary Baca, our engineer today, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. Please stay tuned for Democracy Now! By the way, if you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Uh, Sojourner Truth uh, will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend and you all stay well and safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.